0: Scripture reading today will be uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined for us wrath, uh, but to obtain the salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up, uh, build one another up, just as you are doing. I heard a story about a navy diver who came home one day and told his wife that he doesn't think her mother liked him very much. And, of course, his wife was like, of course my mother loves you. Why would you say she doesn't like you? And he explained that he was telling his mother-in-law about the fact that when he is diving, he doesn't wear his wedding ring on his finger because barracudas like shiny objects and it would be very likely that they might attack his hand and he could lose a finger. And in response to that... His mother-in-law told him, well, why don't you just put it on a chain and hang it around your neck? (laughs) And here's the point that I, I want you to think about this morning. We live in a world that can be very discouraging. We live in a world that can often make us feel like we're not wanted or we're not worthy. We live in a world that is very discouraging and I believe that's why God gave us today's anothering command. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11, we are instructed to encourage one another and build one another up. But do we really understand why encouragement is so important? Or do we understand what encouragement requires of us? That's what I want us to consider this morning as we continue this study of the one another commands that we find in scripture What does it really mean to encourage one another and why is it so important? Well scripture does indicate that encouragement serves Three primary purposes that I want to share with you this morning If you go to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 you'll read this instruction Encourage one another day after day so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3:13 indicates that encouragement serves a defensive function by preventing the hardening of our hearts. And so we are to encourage one another in order to protect each other from becoming spiritually desensitized. Therefore, encouragement serves excuse me, encouragement provides protection. That's one of its purposes. But that's not its only purpose. If you stay in the book of Hebrews and you jump over to chapter 10, you look at verses 24 and 25 of of Hebrews chapter 10, you'll see these instructions. You'll, You'll see instructions to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This passage in Hebrews indicates that stirring up one another and encouraging one another serves an offensive function. In other words, it promotes behavior that's associated with love and good works. So our encouragement of one another is, is intended to motivate each other to produce the attitudes and the actions that are consistent with the will of God. And so not only does encouragement provide A protective function, it also provides motivation. Encouragement provides motivation to do what you're supposed to be doing. And if we consider a third function of encouragement, we'll realize that encouragement provides consolation. If you go over to 1 Thessalonians and you look at chapter 4, we have this passage where Paul explains that those who have already passed away will not miss the resurrection when Christ returns. And then he instructs the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 18, to encourage one another with these words. Now, apparently there were some in Thessalonica who were bothered by the fact that their loved ones had died before Christ returned. And they assumed that meant that, that their loved one would, would miss out on the kingdom, would miss out on the reward when Christ comes back. And from Paul's instructions, we can infer that encouragement is intended to provide comfort. Because what Paul does here is explain the correct understanding about the resurrection, about Christ's second coming. It says, encourage each other with these words. Find comfort in knowing this truth. See, during times of uncertainty and times of distress, we're to encourage one another with reminders of God's promises, with reminders of God's word. So when we think about encouragement, in the most simplistic of terms, encouragement is designed to prevent us from making the wrong choices, to promote making the right choices And to correct our focus when times get tough. So ultimately, that means encouragement is an intentional construction effort. When we encourage each other, we are contributing to one another's spiritual success. We are helping. We are helping to build up one another's faith. We are engaging in a spiritual construction project in each of our lives when we encourage one another. That's the ultimate objective with encouragement. That's why we'll find three, four, five times in the New Testament this instruction to encourage one another. It's an important anothering command because it will protect, it will promote, and it will comfort. But do we really know what it means to encourage? See, I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning focused on examining what it's going to take for us to be a part of God's construction crew. What it's going to take for us to truly fulfill this obligation of encouragement in the body of Christ. And it comes down to three basic things. First, in order to be a part of God's construction crew, I must see the best in others. Now, no one epitomizes this more than a guy named Joseph who we're introduced to in Acts chapter 4. Joseph was integral to the growth of the church during its infancy. And you can first read about him in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Now, we don't typically remember his surname of Joseph. We're more familiar with his nickname, Barnabas. That nickname, which actually means son of encouragement, that is a very specific nickname. And obviously he received that nickname because he possessed great talent at encouraging people. But how did this encouragement manifest itself? How did Barnabas earn that nickname? Well, in some cases, Barnabas's encouragement manifested itself through benevolence. Uh, You can look in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, where we're introduced to him, and you'll see that he encouraged the church in Jerusalem by benevolently selling his property and giving the proceeds to the apostles for use in God's kingdom. That was a way in which he encouraged the church. In other instances, his encouragement manifested itself through a, a spirit of unity. For example, if you jump over to Acts chapter 11, Verses 19 through 24, you'll find Barnabas encouraging Gentile converts in the city of Antioch. And he's doing this by ministering to them despite his Jewish heritage. In, in other words, he ignored the cultural and ethnic divides that plagued the first century church and other communities. He didn't care about the ethical, the, the, not ethical, the ethnic differences between him and others. And worked with whoever needed ministering. At other times, Barnabas's encouragement manifested itself through uh, the responsibilities he was willing to assume. One of the things I find fascinating about Barnabas is that throughout Scripture, he served in a variety of roles. He's called a teacher in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 13. He's identified as a gift-bearer also in Acts chapter 11. He served as a missionary in Acts chapter 13 and 14, and even as a delegate in Acts chapter 15. And so it appears that Barnabas encouraged the church because he was willing to do whatever needed to be done. He was willing and volunteering for whatever role needed to be filled by him at any given time. And that's a source of encouragement as well. But none of the things I've mentioned, I believe, are Barnabas' greatest contribution to the church. As an encourager, I think Barnabas' greatest contribution was his uncanny ability to see the best in other people. For example, it's Barnabas who initially vouched for Paul. We talked about this a couple of times in our roundtable studies a few Sunday nights ago. But after Paul's conversion, way back in Acts chapter 9 and in verse 26, we're told that Paul attempted to um, join the disciples in Jerusalem. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. You could say that Paul's past as a persecutor was too prevalent for people to look past. Well, everyone kept their distance from Paul, in comes Barnabas. Everyone's afraid that Paul's pretending to be a disciple in order to infiltrate the church. And Barnabas enters the scene, willingly escorting Paul to the apostles in order to present him as a believer. Barnabas Barnabas decided not to buy into the fear associated with Paul. Instead, he decided to look at the best in Paul. His past as a persecutor didn't matter to Barnabas. All Barnabas saw was a brother in Christ and brought him to the apostles. So the man who the church was too afraid to accept became its greatest missionary largely because an encourager saw the potential in him rather than the problem. Interestingly, that characteristic of Barnabas didn't just bring Paul into the church. It also contributed to his split from Paul. If you journey over to the end of Acts chapter 15, you see that Paul and Barnabas have a falling out. They've done a missionary trip together, but now as they set to go out on another missionary campaign, they've decided to part ways. And it's all because Barnabas wanted to invite John Mark to be a partner on this trip as well. Even though John Mark had deserted them on their first trip, back in Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. That desertion had such a lasting impact on Paul that Paul refused to work with John Mark anymore. But Barnabas, once again, saw the potential rather than the problem. So Barnabas got John Mark, said bye to Paul, and went his own way. And in the end, Barnabas' acceptance of John Mark proved beneficial because Paul requested Mark's presence with him during his Roman imprisonment, saying in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 11, He is useful to me. In ministry. This is just another occasion in which the son of encouragement saw past someone's failures and found a bright future for them. And as a result, Paul, by requesting Mark's presence, indirectly acknowledged that Barnabas's encouragement efforts transformed a deserter into a useful worker. See, our takeaway from Barnabas should be this, that encouragement is a universal need within the church. At some point in time, everyone from the prolific Pauls to the meager Marks needs encouragement. And the church is desperately in need of people like Barnabas, Of people who will encourage, because we exist in a world that is full of put downs and passivity and pessimism. So we need more people who will do the job of building up. We need more people who will bring their enthusiasm and their optimism. We need more people who will combat the negativity of this world with positivity. And I believe that's why we're instructed to encourage one another and build one another up. And when you really consider that instruction, it means that we're all instructed to be like Barnabas. And being like Barnabas means seeing the best in others. Rather than nitpicking their failures, rather than focusing on the flaws rather than finding every reason why we shouldn't give them a second chance. So if we're going to be the kind of encouragers that God's construction crew calls us to be, we're going to have to start seeing the best in others. But we're also going to have to see less of ourselves. It's very interesting to me that when we look at the encouragement and instructions that appear throughout Scripture, they're often paired with an instruction to build up one another. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11 has both. Encourage one another and build one another up. And this expectation of building one another is prevalent. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 26, where Paul indicates that all things that are done when we come together, particularly in the worship assembly, must be done for building up. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul says that the various roles assigned to members of the body of Christ, whether it be the role of an apostle or the role of an evangelist or a shepherd or a teacher, all of these roles exist for the building up of the body of Christ. In that same chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, down in verse 26, Paul instructs us to guard our words so that only those things that are good for building up are spoken. The command to encourage one another includes this command to build each other up. And it's worth mentioning that some build-up commands are specifically paired with statements related to humility. So, for example, look at Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 2, Paul says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. But notice the verse that is immediately before that. Romans chapter 15 and verse 1, where Paul first says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We're instructed to build up others. And before Paul gets to that instruction in Romans chapter 15, he makes sure to point out that our job as Christians is not to please ourselves. There is an expectation of humility that must accompany any effort to build up one another. I want to point you to another passage very quickly. It's 1 Corinthians 10, particularly around verses 23 through 24. In the midst of Paul addressing how eating food sacrificed to idols can be a stumbling block to some, in the midst of that big discussion, he indicates that it was not wrong in and of itself to eat food sacrificed to idols. But he clarifies that even though such an activity may be lawful, that doesn't mean it builds up. And he goes on to say that the ultimate objective for a Christian in such matters is to not to seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul is instructing us to build up one another there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Don't make your decisions based on what's in your best interest alone. Make your decisions based on what's beneficial for the whole community of faith. He's pairing humility, encouragement with building one another up. What we should gain from these build-one-another-up commands is that encouragement will necessitate self-reduction. That's because you can't successfully build one another up when you're focused on building up yourself. It doesn't work. Think about that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we read about in Luke chapter 18. That Pharisee goes to the temple to pray, and, and do you remember his prayer? It starts off, I thank you, Lord. Now, that's a pretty good start until you, get to find, until you find out what he's thanking God for. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. His prayer is, thank you, God, that I'm better than everybody else. Have you ever prayed that? If so, we've got a spot for you up here, just so you know, because that's not a correct <laughs> prayer. Meanwhile, you have this tax collector across the way who won't even look at heaven because he's so embarrassed at his own sin, who's beating his chest in in shame over his own sin, and he prays, Lord, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. There's humility in that prayer. There's a recognition that he's wrong. And he's willing to admit it. And he's begging God for his mercy. One of those guys came to the temple that day with this, and it's all about me. Mindset while the other came with It's it's all about him mindset and Encouraging one another has to have the latter of the two mindsets and it and it's all about me mindset will inspire Will encourage will build up no one We are inspired we are encouraged we are built up when somebody puts we ahead of me And so I'm reminded of an athlete that competed at the 2012 Summer Olympics in London, his name is Manteo Mitchell. He's a sprinter, a member of the US four x 400 relay team. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that particular track event, that's where uh, four members of a team each race one time around the track passing the baton off to one another, and it's a wonderful race because they're, they're all out sprinting for a whole lap. Now, I competed in track, though it doesn't look like it today, I competed. But that one lap is the most exhausting lap of your life when you're doing it at a full sprint. And these guys are running it on average in 45 seconds. The gentleman I have pictured on the screen, Manteo Mitchell, he was the lead leg of that relay team. That means it was his responsibility to get them started at a fast, steady pace. About halfway around his lap, as he's, as he's the first leg of this race, it's the preliminaries of the Olympics. They've got, a, they've got a place high enough in this race to make it to the finals in the Olympics. And if you know anything about U.S. track and field, we kind of like to win. And Tao Mitchell is halfway around the track when he feels a snap in his leg his left let me make sure i get this correct fibula snapped in half as he was running now if you don't know which one's the fibula that's the smaller of the two bones in the lower half of your leg it snapped in half while he was running do you know what he did he finished the race He finished his lap and he passed the baton and he did it in 45 seconds. Now, I want you to think if you're in the middle of that race and your fibula snaps in half, you're gonna feel excruciating pain, number one. And you're gonna have every reason to quit because it's gonna hurt. It's gonna be tormenting. And guess what? Even if your team qualifies for the finals, you're not gonna be running in the finals. Do you know why? Because you have a broken fibula. So Manteo Mitchell is halfway through this race. He feels his bone snap in the lower half of his leg, and now he's got a decision to make. Do I finish the race or do I stop? He's 25 years old. It would be very wise for him to say, okay, I need to stop and protect my health because I want to make more Olympics in the future. And if I keep going, I might endanger that opportunity. But after the race, Manteo was interviewed. And he said, I didn't want to let those three guys down, or the team down, so I just ran on it. He didn't finish the race because it was in his best interest. He finished the race because it was in the best interest of the people he was there with. And the point is that anotherers realize that they're not the only ones in the race. I'm not the only one in this race to receive the crown of righteousness. We're all in it together. And so you know what that means? That means that I don't just run so that I may obtain the prize, to use the words of 1 Corinthians 9. I run also to be a member of the great cloud of witnesses that encourages other Christians to run with endurance the race that is set before them. To use the words of Hebrews chapter 12. I run not just with the mindset that I've got to finish the race. I run with the mindset that I'm going to help everybody I can to finish it with me. That's what an encourager does. That's what an anotherer does. They don't just look at life through the lens of self. They look at it through the lens of community. And that's important. Important to understand community. Because in order to be a part of God's construction crew, not only must I see less of myself, but I must also see more of the body. Look again at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 with me. We've already looked at this, and this passage instructs us to stir up one another, to encourage one another. But let's read it again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think it's important to note that the author of Hebrews assumes a relationship between encouragement and assembly. As the author of Hebrews instructs us to stir up one another and encourage one another, he simultaneously instructs us to meet together. And what that indicates is that encouragement is intricately connected to assembly. And this assumption that's here in Hebrews chapter 10 is supported by the practice of the first century church when you walk through the book of Acts. See, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 15, Paul and Barnabas arrived and. Pisidian Antioch on their first missionary journey, and they went to the local synagogue. And when they went there, they were invited to speak if they had any word of encouragement. Now think about that. The church hadn't been established in this community yet. They're there to do that. And in order for them to to start a congregation, they first go and meet with the only people in that community that worship the one true God. So they go to the precursor, if you will, of the Christian assembly. They go to the synagogue. And upon arrival uh, in this place where people are assembled to worship God, they're asked, hey, hey, Do you have any words of encouragement you'd like to share? Assembly and encouragement going hand in hand. Now skip ahead to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, you have representatives of the church in Antioch meeting with representatives of the church in Jerusalem and the apostles so that they can discuss what the will of God is on this issue of Gentile inclusion in the church. And once that is determined... Once the apostles communicate that will, they write a letter, and guess what? They pick two guys, Silas and another guy named Judas Barsabbas, send them back to Antioch to deliver that letter from the apostles, which outlined their determination of God's will. And we're told in Acts chapter 15, verses 30 through 32, that when Silas and Judas arrived in Antioch, they gathered the congregation together and encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words— once again, assembly and encouragement hand in hand. And then you can go over to Acts chapter 16. This is after Paul and Silas' miraculous release from the Philippian jail. We're told that they went to Lydia's house. Now earlier in that chapter, you find out that Lydia is the first household converted there in Philippi. Not just Lydia, but every member of her house. And so the first place of assembly for Christians in Philippi likely became Lydia's house. And if you look down at verse 40 of Acts chapter 16, you'll see that after Paul and Silas have been released, they go to Lydia's house. And we're told that when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and then departed. In other words, after they got out of prison, Paul and Silas went to where the believers met and encouraged them. Assembly and encouragement paired together again. So what we learn from Hebrews chapter 10, from that instruction about not neglecting to meet together, as well as the practice of the church throughout the book of Acts, What we learn is that one of the chief purposes of the Christian assembly is to mutually encourage one another. Do you realize that coming here today, that praising God in song, that remembering the Lord's death through observance of the Lord's Supper, that communicating to God through prayer, and listening to me ramble on for oh 30 minutes now is not the entire fulfillment of your responsibility today. That there is another component to our expectation as brothers and sisters in Christ when we gather together as the body. And that expectation is that we're going to encourage one another. So if you come today and you take up your seat in your pew and you go through all the motions that come with worship service and you never talk to anyone, you never ask anyone how they're doing, you, you, you never uplift or encourage or, or, or speak words that would benefit someone, then you haven't completed the entirety of God's expectation for your time here today. We can't view Worship as solely me doing something for God. That's a huge part of it. But worship and the assembly were also intended to have a fellowship component to them. And that's been the part that we've missed so much of during the course of the past year. And that's why I'm so thankful that we are now starting to have an opportunity where people can come back. And we can start being together more. Because there's a lot of people whose faith was benefiting from the praise of God, from the study of God's Word, from the participation in, in, in communion, but whose faith was suffering because they missed out on the encouragement from one brother to another. Encouraging one another, being part of God's construction crew, does require us to see more of the body of believers. That's because your relationship with God is personal, but it was never meant to be private. What I mean is that God knew our faith would be stronger collectively than it would be individually. So, as one minister said, he deployed his people into local spiritual families. In the Old Testament, his people were identified through a family made up of clans and tribes that were associated with Abraham. But now, through the New Testament, his people are identified through a family made up of individual congregations associated with his church. And the responsibility of your spiritual family, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, is to help you grow up into Christ. And Paul says this can't happen unless each part of the whole body is working properly. So it's the job of your brothers and sisters in Christ, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted to help the weak and to be patient with all. And the most consistent opportunity the family of God will have to fulfill that obligation to one another is through the regular weekly assemblies of the body of believers. And that's why Hebrews instructs us not to neglect to meet together. And the point is that if you're not here And that includes our body that's meeting down in the fellowship hall. You're probably, if you're not here, you're probably not missing out on worshiping God because you can do that from anywhere. You're probably not missing out on studying God's Word because you can do that from anywhere. But you may be missing out on giving and receiving the encouragement needed for us to collectively and successfully grow up into Christ. As we draw this lesson to a close, I want to point out one final verse. It's Colossians chapter 4 and verse 8, and it says this, I have sent him, and the hymn is a reference to Tychicus. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul indicated that he intentionally chose Tychicus to go to Colossae because he knew Tychicus would encourage them. But here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to listen to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 8. And I want you to replace the reference to Tychicus with your own name. So for me, I would read this verse as, I have sent Kyle to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I want you to look at that verse and insert your own name. And I want you to ask yourself, did it sound right when you did? Did it make you uncomfortable when you did? Have you been an encourager to others such that God would intentionally send you into another person's life for that purpose? If not, why not? Because one of the jobs of us as anotherers is to encourage one another and build one another up. This morning, I hope this time of study is, in fact, encouraging. I hope our time of praise was encouraging. I hope our participation collectively in the remembrance of our Lord's death was encouraging. It is my prayer that everything we do in worship is encouraging and uplifting. But is our communication with one another? Is our fellowship with one another encouraging? Are we a body of believers made up of encouragers? This morning, that is our challenge to truly fulfill the responsibility of encouraging one another to see the best in others to see less of ourselves, and to see more of the body. This morning, we consider this responsibility of encouraging that we have, because we all need encouragement. And maybe this morning that you especially need some encouragement. And so we offer this invitation that if you're struggling with anything, if you need building up, don't be afraid to share that with us because that's why we're here, to help one another endure what this world throws at us. But even more important than that, we're here to encourage each other to be spiritually successful. And for some of you, that might need to start today by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. By repenting of your sins and by being immersed in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of those sins. We want to encourage you to make that decision today if you haven't already. If you need encouragement this morning, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing this song.